The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Today's scripture is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The word of God for the people of God. I have so much to do that I must spend the first three hours of my day in prayer. Those words are from the great reformer Martin Luther. And most of us, when we hear something like that, like that go, yeah, right, Marty. <laughs> I don't got three hours. That would be extremely inefficient. Why would I do that? But what if I told you that what you need is to be more inefficient? What if I told you that what you need in your life is less efficiency and more inefficiency? If you lived in the 1800s, guess how many hours of sleep on average per night you would get? 10. Those of you with kids would just do anything for that, right? And until 1879, the year that Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, sleep on average has decreased over time. No longer do we sleep according to the natural patterns of sunrise and sunset. Technology affords us more time to be awake. In fact, one of the promises of technology is that we will be more efficient and in doing so have more time for rest and leisure. In fact, a Senate subcommittee in 1967 predicted by the year 1985, the average American would work 22 hours per week for 27 weeks per year because of all the technology that would afford us more time and leisure. Now look at us. Instead of Work staying at work, work often comes home with us. A 2016 survey found that the average iPhone user touches their phone over 2,600 times per day, totaling up to two and a half hours of screen time, and by 2019, that number almost doubled. So instead of technology delivering on its promise for more rest and more leisure, we're strained into more and more busyness. We live in a society where hurry is normal, busyness is a virtue, and efficiency is king. 
Michael Zuccarelli from Messiah University did a five-year study on 20,000 Christians in the United States and identified busyness as the number one distraction from life with God. He summarizes his own research with these five conclusions. He says, it may be the case that number one, Christians are assimilating to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, which leads to number two, God becoming more marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to number three, a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to number four, Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to number five, more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload. And then the cycle begins. So let me ask you again, what if what you need is to be more inefficient in your life? What if what you need is to slow down in order to speed up? That phrase, slow down in order to speed up, is a phrase that Pastor Bob uses all the time with our staff team to encourage us. Slow down in order to speed up. J.I. Packer says, live slowly enough to be able to think deeply about God. And while we might not have three hours a day to pray like Luther, Luther is on to something. The slow, inefficient discipline of prayer is something we all need to recapture, especially in a culture of busyness. And let's be honest, prayer feels inefficient. When you're praying, you're not checking a box off your to-do list oftentimes. When you're praying and praying and praying, things often don't change right away. It feels slow. It feels inefficient. Listen to what Tim Keller says on the importance of prayer. Prayer is the only entryway into genuine self-knowledge. It is also the main way we experience deep change, the reordering of our loves. Prayer is how God gives us so many of the unimaginable things he has for us. Indeed, prayer makes it safe for God to give us many of the things we most desire. It is the way we know God, and get this, it is the way we finally treat God as God. The prayer that Paul prays here in Ephesians chapter 1 is a masterpiece of what it looks like to treat God as God. And in a cultural moment where busyness is a virtue and efficiency is king, Paul's prayer is a needed remedy for us. So with that, let's just look at Paul's prayer starting in verse 15. He says, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul is telling the church in Ephesus, you're doing really well. He's heard of their faith. He's heard of their love. This church is excelling, and yet he prays for them. Think about what Paul's doing here. He's saying again, you guys are doing great. You have faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. You have love toward all the saints. And for this reason, I have not stopped praying for you. And we're like, wait a minute. Why do they need to be prayed for? They're not in crisis. They're doing great. And Paul would say, that's the point. Prayer is adding fuel to the fire that is already burning. See, what does Paul pray for? And this is what I want us to look at this morning. Four things Paul prays for, for the Ephesians. Number one, that they would know God, 
know God's hope, know God's love, and number four, know God's power. Number one, to know God. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. The first request that Paul has is that the Ephesians would know God more. But didn't Paul just say in verse 15, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus? Didn't, didn't Paul just say, you already, essentially, you know God? And Paul, again, would be, yeah, that's the point. Paul's prayer shows us that when we know God, the thing we need most is to know God even more. No matter how long you've walked with God, there is always more of God to know. And when I say know God, I'm not talking about a theoretical, abstract, lifeless knowledge. I'm talking about a deep, growing relationship with God, where you are loving God more today than you did 10 years ago, where you have an active awareness today of your need for God's grace, where you know and realize where God is inviting you to change and transform today, not just holding on to a story from 10 or 15 years ago. This is an active, life-filled, spirit-empowered knowledge of God. Let me put it to you like this. When someone first becomes a Christian, it's common for there to be instant, amazing growth. Old sin patterns are put to death. New relationships are formed. Reading God's word is a joy. But then at some point, the pace of growth often slows or even stops. And you hit what the book The Critical Journey calls the wall. Maybe you've been there. Maybe that's you. And you're tempted to believe the lie that more transformation and change is not possible. Maybe even you're, you're okay with holding on to certain sin habits, even though you see the collateral damage. Or maybe time with God has been pushed to the side and has become a burden, and you allow busyness to be an excuse while time with God and prayer slips. Here's the thing. You can pray anytime, anywhere. While you walk your dog, while you're driving, while you go to the grocery store, between meetings, our God is ready anytime, anywhere. And yet, multitasking kills intimacy. If the only time that I talked to Cheyenne was while I was doing another task, our relationship would be stagnant at best. And this is why I'm convinced that set aside distraction-free time with God is essential for not only knowing God more, but in turn experiencing deep transformation. And this might be an overstatement, but here it goes. Your ceiling of growth will only be as deep as your prayer life. And there's not a single person in this room that doesn't need to know God more. That's an evergreen prayer. You can pray that at any time, for anyone, for yourself, for the person sitting next to you. And the more we know God, the sweeter he gets. There are no diminishing returns, which leads to our second point, know God's hope. Paul prays, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you might know 
Here it is. What is the hope to which he has called you? For the Christian, life is about having a posture of hope. Hope is having a conviction that my present situation does not determine the meaning of my life. Hope is a stubborn posture that no matter my circumstances, God gets the final word. God is renewing all things in Jesus, and God has called each of you into his story of renewal. See, imagine a world where every tear is wiped away, and there's no more pain, suffering, or death. Imagine a world where swords are turned into plowshares, and there's no more war or division. Imagine a world where there is no abuse or shame or sin or Satan. Imagine a world where you see yourself for how God truly sees you. Made in his image, cherished, loved. Imagine a world where God's presence covers the earth as the waters cover the seas. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you are called into this story of hope and this story of renewal. In a life of Christian hope, a life of hopeful prayer, disciplines one's mind and imagination in this reality. But here's the problem that we all face in this room to varying degrees. A posture of hope is not our default. We're prone to worry. We're prone to fear. We're prone to anxiety. I mean, what's the first thing your mind races to when you get up in the morning? What's the last thing you try to stop thinking about as you try to fall asleep at night? It's easy to allow our minds to drift into all the what-ifs and the undones and the to-dos of the day. Our minds gravitate toward fear and worry without even trying. And in a culture of busyness, we then settle for escapism or distraction. And while escapism and distraction might alleviate something for a little bit, in the end, that's only going to lead to more fear and more worry. But what if? What if our minds and our imaginations gravitated more toward the certain promises of God and his story of renewal? What if that was where your mind went? What would that do for yourself? What would that do for your gospel community? What would that do for us as the people of Coromdale? Paul is praying that the church community in Ephesus would grow in their hope. That this is a prayer, yes, to be prayed for yourself, but also for the people around you. For the people in your family, in your gospel community, and our church at large. That God is calling his people to be a community of hope in an age of fear. And imagine what that would be like. Which leads to Paul's third thing he prays for. Know God's love. 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. And here it is. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, I don't know about you, but that last clause there, his glorious inheritance in the saints, that sounds like a lot of Bible talk. Like, what is Paul talking about there? 
And you might think, first off, that Paul's referring to the inheritance that Christians have. Because just a paragraph before, Paul does talk about how Christians do have a future inheritance. But read carefully. Paul says that the Christians in Ephesus might know the hope and the, his, sorry, his glorious inheritance. Who's the his? God. God has an inheritance. What does that mean? What is God's inheritance? It's his people. It's us. This language of God having an inheritance goes all the way back to the first books of the Bible. Let me just show you one place. Deuteronomy chapter 4. But the Lord has taken you, the children of Israel, and brought you out of the iron furnace of Egypt to be a people of his inheritance, as you are this day. The scriptures speak of this same truth in other places. Isaiah 40. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him. What is God's reward? How do you reward the creator of the universe? How do you reward the sovereign, all-sufficient, all-knowing, all-powerful king and creator of all? What could you possibly give God as a reward? The next verse tells us, verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. God's reward is his flock, his people. The arm with which God comes to rule with might and power is the very same arm with which he gathers his flock. And those who are the most vulnerable and the most needy, God carries closest to his heart. So think about what Paul is saying here. Paul is praying that the Ephesians would grow in their understanding and their awareness of how God sees them loved, cherished, favored by God. That they are God's special possession, that they are God's reward, that they are God's inheritance. Christian psychologist Kurt Thompson says that we are all born into this world looking for someone looking for us. And we remain in this mode of searching for the rest of our lives. We are all born into this world looking for someone looking for us. And we remain in this mode of searching for the rest of our lives. What if the love that you're looking for can only be found in God's love for you? Listen to what D.A. Carson says about this exact passage in Ephesians. He says, Paul wants us, we need to know who we are as God sees us. Paul wants us to appreciate the value that God places on us, not because we are intrinsically worthy, because we have been identified with Christ. We have been chosen by him. 
His righteousness reckoned ours, our destiny to be joint heirs with him. If we maintain this vision before our eyes of who we are, nothing less than God's inheritance, we will be concerned to live in line with this incredibly high calling. God relentlessly loves his people. God is eager to be with his people. And for us to begin to comprehend how much God loves us, prayer is required, which leads us to our final point. We've seen how Paul prays that the Ephesians would know God, know God's hope, know God's love. But Paul concludes his prayer by asking that the Ephesians would know God's power. And it's here that Paul spends the most time in his prayer. He prays that the Ephesians might know, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, just very briefly, verses 20 through 23 is all describing God's power. And again, it's here that Paul gives the most attention in his prayer. I love how D.A. Carson again puts it. Paul cannot be satisfied with a brand of Christianity that is orthodox but dead, rich in theory of justification but powerless when it comes to transforming people's lives. It's as if Paul knows that in order for us to know God and know God's hope and know God's love, we need God's power to do so. Because God knows that we're weak. God knows that we are needy. We can barely make it through a day, let alone a week, without faltering or failing. We've all been there. Have you ever said to yourself, I don't think I have what it takes to continue. I don't think I have what it takes to continue with my commitment to my spouse. I don't have what it takes to be a good parent or a good employee or I don't have the strength to keep going. I don't have it in me. Well, in many ways, you're right. You don't have what it takes. How can we know that we will make it to that final day? How can we know that we will stand before him and he says to us, well done, good and faithful servant? 
It's not gonna be because of your own strength. It's not gonna be because of your good works. It's not even gonna be because of the prayers that you pray. It's going to be by God's power and God's power alone. And what you need to know about God's power is, well, he's really powerful. In verse 19, the immeasurable greatness of his power. In other words, listen, there's not even a unit of measurement capable of describing God's power. It's not that God's power just breaks the scales and exceeds the longest unit of measurement. Paul's, or God's power, sorry, is so great. There's not even an adequate way to begin to measure it. To measure it. And this immeasurably great power, Paul says, is toward those who believe. Paul is praying not that we would just know that God is powerful. He is praying that. But he's praying more than that. He's praying that we would know that God's power is for our sake. There's this common cliche that goes something like this. God won't give you more than you can handle. To which I say that's just Christianized American self-sufficiency stuff. The moment you think you can handle it, whatever it is, is the moment you begin to rely on your own power rather than God's. Prayer is to remind us of our own powerlessness. See, the lie that unraveled paradise in Genesis 3 was you can be like God. In other words, you can be all-powerful. And this is not just an ancient story tucked away in some ancient past. We replay and believe the serpent's lie all the time. And that's why we're over busy, over committed, and prayer falls off the table. Why? Because I can do it on my own. I'm self-sufficient. I'm an American. I don't need to pray. I can get by just fine on my own. See, if you're finding prayer inessential, can I just offer this simple reflection? Powerlessness fuels prayer. If you want to know where you're believing the serpent's lie, just look at the places in your life where you tend not to pray. And if you grasp this, that powerlessness fuels prayer, this will drive you to the Father because the truth is you are powerless. Powerless to control anything, powerless to make it happen, powerless to change on your own. And you can live in the confusion that you are occasionally powerless or you can live in the clarity that you are completely powerless. And the only reason the latter is life and life to the full is that in and through Jesus, you have access to a God with immeasurably great power and who's infinitely generous. Because friends, Jesus is the one human being not compromised by sin. He's the one human being that does not live his life or did not live his life on his own strength, rather fully relying on God's power. He's the one who lived the life that God intended every single one of us to live, yet we perpetually fail to live. 
And Jesus lives that life on our behalf and dies on our behalf. And on the cross, he absorbs the collective pile of all our decisions that we try to do in our own power. But God's commitment to sinful humanity is so strong that in the person of Jesus, he has the power to reverse death into life. In and through Jesus, he has the power to take the most sinful, selfish, stubborn human being and through an encounter with the risen Jesus, transform that person into a person of love. And it's this resurrection power that Paul is talking about. And it's this power that is continually available to you today. How? Through the Spirit of God. We have access because of God's Holy Spirit. Remember what Paul said in verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you, here it is, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. It's through the Spirit. Paul is praying that the Spirit would open, and he goes on to say, the eyes of their heart, that, they would, that the Spirit of God would enlighten the eyes of their hearts. Just think about that language for a moment. The eyes of our hearts. That says something about what it means to be human. That Paul's tapping into this reality that we are not just brains on a stick that just need logical right inputs in our minds. That there's something about the human being that we see with our hearts, that our affections, our desires, our motivations are the, really the thing that drive us, that fuel us, that animate us. And so when Paul is praying that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened by the Spirit, he's praying that the Spirit of God would do something not just on the surface, but deep down into the crevices and cracks of our very being. That all of this, the prayer to, to know God more, the prayer to know God's hope and to know God's love and to know God's power would sink so deep within your inner being that you begin to see with your heart, your motivations, a completely new way of living in the world. That all these things would penetrate and sink down deep. Because ultimately, what Paul is praying for is a work of the Holy Spirit. What Paul is asking for can only be accomplished by the Holy Spirit as God's people pray. So why should you want to pray for these things? Why should you want to pray to know God more, to know God's hope, to know God's love, to know God's power? Because what you're praying for is a move of God's spirit to do something in your life and in the life of the person sitting next to you and in the life of the person sitting across the room from you that only the spirit of God can do. Prayer is partnering with the spirit of God to do something that would not happen on its own. Even someone like John Piper, who has a high and robust view of the sovereignty of God, says this. Prayer causes things to happen that wouldn't happen if you didn't pray. And through our prayers, the Spirit of God is unleashed.
Why should you pray these things for yourself? Why should you pray these things for your kids? Why should you pray these things for your gospel community and for others around you? Because deep down, I know you want to see the Spirit of God move in your life. Deep down, you want to see the Spirit of God move not only in your life, but in the life of the person sitting next to you. Deep down, you want to see the Spirit of God move in the life of someone sitting across the room from you. You want to see the Spirit of God move in the life of someone that's going to be in your living room this week at Gospel Community. Deep down, this is what you want. So let me end where I began. What if what you need is, is you need to be more inefficient? Because what you really want is a move of God's Spirit. So pray. And pray again. And pray some more. Trusting that in His timing, in His way, in His power, the Spirit of God will accomplish only that which He can do. So, Spirit of God, we ask. We ask that you would do this fresh work in us and through us and in this community. Spirit of God, give us a desire and a hunger to see you move in this way. Spirit of God, would you enlighten our hearts? Would you give us revelation, wisdom, and insight that you might transform us, that we might know you more, that we might cherish you more, that we might see you do a work that can only be attributed to you? So, Spirit, we confess our propensity to want to do things on our own strength. Forgive us for the ways that we seek to live life in our own power. And so would you come meet us in our weakness? For when we are weak, you are strong. We love you. We thank you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.